0: No matter what you received for Christmas this year or what you could ever receive, no matter what material gift anybody could ever give you, nothing compares to what God gave us when he gave us Jesus. It's the reason why we give gifts to one another is to remind each other of what we received on Christmas all those years ago. God gave us Jesus. And with Jesus, he gave us life. He made us righteous, which means to be right with him. So I want to share a message with you today called Present. And this is the final message in our Righteous series. And if you have your Bibles with you, will not you turn with me uh, to John chapter number one in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, New Testament. And I'm going to go to chapter number one. And it really talks about how Jesus came into the earth and what happened when he came into the earth. I'm going to read from verse nine. So if you have your Bibles or your iPhones or whatever you're using uh, to read your Bible on John chapter number one, And verse 9, it says the true light. Stop there for a quick side note. This means that there are other things that seem like light, that appear to be light, that seem to be wise, but they're not the true light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus was coming into this world. One place further on in this chapter, it says those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. The same God who created this world came into this world. Yet the world did not know Him. We did not recognize Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not believe in His name. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. To all who did believe Him, who did receive Him through faith, God gave the right for them to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, and from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through moses grace and truth came through jesus christ we have received from his fullness grace upon grace i'm going to i'm going to pray for us this morning and uh, we're going to look at the scripture and and just thank God for his presence. Father, we thank you right now that you are here with us, that you're speaking, that you're leading, that you're guiding, that you're changing hearts, that you're changing minds, that you're doing supernatural things that none of us could do in our own strength, Lord God, that we couldn't engineer or orchestrate, but your spirit speaks, our hearts are open, and we hear you this morning, God. I pray that you meet every individual where they're at, Lord God, whether they're doubting this morning, whether they're skeptical, whether they're, whether they're uh, excited and full of faith, Lord God, wherever they're at this morning, we thank you, Jesus, that Your spirit speaks to us clearly in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. I've noticed that uh, people tend to have this idea that God is kind of always busy hiding himself from us. Or busy hiding himself from his people. Almost like God is into this really big cosmic game hide-and-seek, where we literally run around in churches and in Bible verses and in worship songs looking for God. Like we feel like we've lost some sort of a connection with Him, and and, and we have to try and, and find Him as He hides Himself. Has anybody here ever owned a hamster? Anybody ever owned a hamster? Most useless pets on planet Earth, right? Am I, am I right when I say that? Hamsters are are just ridiculously useless. And, and there's this thing about a hamster, which is that once you put it in its cage, it creates a little nest out of the toilet paper and the sawdust, and, and it hides away in that nest during all hours of the day. And if you wanna play with that hamster, you literally have to coax it out. I remember as a child literally coaxing this thing out. Please come out. Here's here's something to eat. Here's something to drink. Come and be my friend. I just want to pet you and love you. You know, I bought you for a reason and that reason was not for you to sleep all day. Can you just come out and be my friend? And 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 it's like coaxing this hamster out. And and sometimes it's like it's like that when we when we approach God, we feel like we have to almost coax him out. Like please God, please can you come out and be our friend? Please can you just spend some time with us? Please can you just talk to us? Please can you just just, just say something. Can you just be present? Somehow we've developed this theology where God is like a temperamental hamster that you can't get out of the nest, that you can't genuinely meet with, that you can't genuinely experience, that you can't genuinely uh, speak to and hear from. Like he's waiting for all the conditions to just be right, to just be perfect. And because we've developed this theology, the church has traditionally gone on this effort, this this whole uh, tangent of trying to produce the correct conditions to get God to show up. Like don't make too much noise or don't sing the wrong songs or or make sure you pray the right kind of prayers and make sure you, you have the right kind of this and the right kind of that. And if the decor looks like that or the pastor speaks like that or the worship team does that song and not that song, then God won't show up. As if God were that fickle. As if anything that we could do as people would be good enough to get the creator of heaven and earth to show up. Can can we just see for a moment how much narcissism is involved in that? How much we are full of ourselves and caught up in our own image when we think that we can create the perfect conditions for God to show up, for God to be present. Oh, God's not present today because you didn't do this. This is how far we've missed it with God, with our view of God, with our perspective of God. I know it sounds really silly comparing God to a temperamental hamster, and that for me is a first, but that's how skewed it is. That's how warped that theology is, that we think that God is, is the sensitive being that, that can't show up unless everything is perfect. We become like the prophets of Baal. I don't know if you have read the story in the Old Testament where Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to this duel. And he goes up onto a mountain and he says to them, right, let's build two altars. And if Baal is the true God, then he will bring fire down from heaven onto your altar and burn whatever's on your altar. But if my God is the true God, then he will bring down fire onto my altar. And he's like, let's see who the true God is. You guys do your altar, you go first. I'll wait for your gods to respond. If they don't respond, I'll pray to my God and we'll see once and for all who the real God is. Elijah is this crazy guy. He's, he's this hairy guy living out in the desert, just you know, calling down fire at will. He's just, he does some pretty crazy stuff. And here he sets up like the ultimate, if this was reality TV, could you imagine? It's like the ultimate challenge. You bring fire down, I'll bring fire down. And he sets up the whole thing and the prophets of bowl begin to pray to bowl and say bring fire down bring fire down bring fire down show up show up please bowl please bowl show up show up please bowl please don't let, don't let us be ashamed we we're, we're all prophet, prophets of you we've all given our lives to worship you we've all please just let some fire come down from heaven please and and they get desperate and they get so desperate that they start, the Bible says, wailing, they start crying out. It's not in the beginning, it was like quiet prayers. Now there are these loud screams and please, Ball, show up, show up. And when nothing comes out of heaven, when no fire shows up, the Bible says that they start cutting themselves to show their devotion to Ball. But Ball, we love you. We love you. Literally, we're spilling blood. Can you just show up? Sometimes we still do the same thing. We think that it's our cutting of ourselves, our self-mutilation and our our severe bodily discipline and all of our requirements and things that we've set up just right. That's what's going to bring God's presence. That's what's going to cause God to bring his fire and his power into a situation. You know what Elijah does? He does the opposite of that. In fact, he says, hey, can somebody bring me some water? He's like, if you think the conditions have to be just right for the fire to burn, I'm going to show you that the conditions can be the opposite of just right. And he pours water all over the sacrifice, all over the altar. In fact, he builds a ditch around it. He fills the whole thing up with, with water. This whole place, the wood is drenched. Everything on this altar is drenched. And then he prays a simple prayer of faith. And we've seen some of Elijah's prayers before where heard the still small voice of God. In another place in Scripture, Elijah goes up onto a hill and he says, there was a thunder and there was, a, you know, there was an earthquake and God's voice wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a great wind that blew against the mountain and God's, God's voice wasn't in the wind. And then a great fire scorched the whole side of the mountain and God's voice was not in that fire. And then he heard a still small voice. It's an intimate relationship with God. So something genuine and something authentic and th- something real. So here's the, these guys have been cutting themselves. There's blood all over the place. They've gone nuts trying to create the perfect condition for God to show up. And on this side, he's just wet everything. He's just poured water on the altar, water in the whole ditch. And he just goes, God, show yourself. I have faith in you as the true God. And all of a sudden, it says that the stones were literally burnt up. The fire of God just came down in their place. The, the power of God. So when we think that we need to play the right kind of music or say the right kind of prayers or do things in a certain way for God to show up, it's actually a lack of faith and it's a lack of intimacy. We're not practicing intimacy with God regularly enough. So when we come into a church service, we're like, ah, how is God going to show up? It's it's like a lack of trust. We don't know if he's really going to be there or not. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of understanding of who the Father is that we serve, of what the gospel says. Here's the deal. All we need is the faith to know that God is already present. He is already present. We just need the faith to recognize and experience His presence here. We just need to know that Jesus came to be with us. And that's the amazing truth that I want to share with you today. And this might sound so simple, but if it hits you, it'll change your life. The simple truth this morning is that God wants to be with us. It doesn't make sense. There's no way that we're worthy of it. There's no way we could ever have deserved it. There's no way that the creator of heaven and earth should ever even want anything to do with people like us. But because He is good and because He is faithful and because He is love and because He is true, He genuinely wants to be with us. We're running after God and He's going, no, 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 I'm the one running after you. I'm the one pursuing you. The Bible says that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That's that's the greatest thing that God could give. He gave Himself. He gave Himself up delivered himself up to be crucified on a cross because of his great love for us. That's the level of pursuit. I remember when I pursued my wife, I had, she lived in Kempton, it was far to drive. And who wants to drive to Kempton? Come, let's be honest this morning. But God didn't pursue us across the city. God didn't pursue us across a couple of suburbs. The love of God is so great that he pursued us across the universe. He came to this earth. He loved us so much that he sent his only son. And he did this, the Bible says, while we were still sinners. We were still cut off from God. We were still rebels. We were still running away from God. He goes, I don't, listen to me. God goes, I know you're a rebel. I know you're a sinner. I know you're running in the opposite direction. It doesn't change the love that I have for you. And if you feel like a rebel or a sinner or somebody who's running away from God this morning, I wanna tell you, it does not and will not for all of your days, will not change the love that God has for you. He came to be present with you. He wants to know you. He wants to connect with you. He wants you to know him and his heart. He's not wanting to withhold his presence from you. God is not wanting to withhold himself from you. He wants you to experience him. That's the love of God. That's the God that we serve. He is not a distant, dormant, or detached God. He's not absent or apathetic. He truly is God with us. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. Because the birth of Jesus on this earth should eradicate from our hearts and our minds, once and for all, the idea That God is uninvolved that he's distant that he's dormant that he's uncaring and that's really where it comes down to the crux of what we believe does God care about me does God see what I'm going through does God know the thoughts in my heart and in my mind does he know how I am struggling and if he knows does he care God made the greatest statement in all of history when he sent his own son to be born. That little baby lying in that manger declared, I care. I care more than you know. I care more than you think. And I've come to do something about it. God is the father who runs to greet his lost son, he's the shepherd who goes in search of his, of his one lost sheep. He's the creator who enters the world that he created. He's the God who does not shy away from our sins or our imperfections or our flaws or our failures, but steps into our pain, steps into the midst of our burdens and bears them on our behalf. This is the gospel. This is the God that we serve. And this is the grand statement that the birth of Jesus makes. God has come to us. Can I tell you that that is the one thing that just separates Christianity and our faith from every other system of religion or form of faith that's out there? That in no other religion will you find a God who became like his creation and died for them. It's a game changer. It's the uniqueness of our faith is that we believe in a God who didn't shy away, who didn't judge us from a distance, who didn't point a finger and say, you guys fix yourselves or offer me these sacrifices or do these things. He said, I'm gonna come down and be the sacrifice for you. You know what that is in one word? It's grace. And that's what separates Christianity from every other religion on the planet, it's grace. It's not a system to be worked. It's not a program to be a part of. It's not a, it's, it's not a job to do. It's grace to receive and respond to. We don't deserve it. But Jesus came to us. In Matthew 1 verse 23, when the angel is, is, is speaking and, and telling and announcing uh, the birth of Jesus, he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus. Emmanuel and the Bible says which means God with us. That's the name of our savior is a god who came to be with us. A god who came to uh, to be present with us, who came to make things right between us and God. I don't know if you've ever had if you've have, ever had a friendship that's a genuine friendship if, a, if people have been friends for a while, usually at some point in that friendship, there's a moment where they argue or they disagree over something. And what happens when two people that are friends disagree? When there's a fallout? You know what happens? They stop seeing each other for a while. They stop speaking to each other. And they kind of go their separate ways. And sadly, in our human brokenness, sometimes it's forever and sometimes those friends reconcile. But the Bible actually speaks about that in one place in scripture. And it says, how can two walk together unless they agree? Unless they're heading in the same direction, unless they're on the same journey together, how can two walk together? You know, the thing is, is that our sinfulness and the things that we've done separated us from God. We couldn't walk with Him. We had a fallout with God. We had an argument over something and we separated and we weren't speaking and we weren't connecting and we were running the opposite direction. It's like if you hear that friend's going to a party and then you go, oh, if she's going to be there or if he's going to be there, I'm not going to be there. That was us with God. Oh, God's going to be there? Okay, I'm not showing up. That's why some people still don't want to come to church. Oh, God's going to be there? I'm not going to be there. Because how can two walk together unless they agree? There was separation between us and God, a serious separation, an eternal separation. And normally it takes one of those two friends to take the first step, a phone call or a text or something. Just like, hey, I'm thinking about you. Hey, can I come and chat to you? Hey, can we go for coffee? And you call that reconciliation. When when two people who were formerly separated, when they're able to reconcile and connect again. Now this is what the scripture says about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19. Listen to this powerful scripture. It says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God himself was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Grace, forgiveness, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In other words, God came into this world. We were were two friends with a feud. We had split, we had separate, and God sent Jesus to say to you, hey, whatever you have done against God, I'm not gonna hold it against you. Through Christ, I'm gonna reconcile you to me. Bible says that those who stood afar off, God has brought near in Ephesians 2. They have been brought near. You've been brought close. We've been brought close. And now God has entrusted that message of reconciliation to us. So we get to go out into this world where people are still having a, having a fight with God, when they're still rebelling against God. Oh, I don't wanna, I don't wanna be anywhere near God. I, I don't like God. I don't like what he did. I don't like what he does. I don't like who he is. And we can go and go, hey, Jesus has made reconciliation. You can come back. You can come home. It's okay. He's forgiven you. He's not gonna hold your sins against you. So Jesus came to deal with the sin that stood between us and God. To deal with it once and for all, the Bible says in in Romans 5. To make us right with God. Our series is called Righteous. That's what it means. He came to make us right with God again. I want to read you just two quotes, one from Charles Spurgeon, where he talks about this. And this was actually a quote that Charles Spurgeon uh, gave on uh, Christmas Eve back in, I think, 1858. Uh, He preached this message. and, And part of this message, he says this, he says, But now the sin which separated us from God has been put away by the blessed sacrifice of Christ upon the tree. And the righteousness, the absence of which causes a gulf between the unrighteous man and righteous God, that righteousness, I say, has been found. For Jesus has brought in everlasting righteousness. The series is about how can you as a sinner be right with God? You know how? Through Jesus. There was a gulf between us created by our unrighteousness and God's righteousness. And Jesus came to bridge that gap to make us righteous so that we can know God. He says this, he says, For Jesus has brought in the everlasting righteousness so that now, in Jesus, God is with us, reconciled to us. The sin which caused his wrath is forever put away from his people. In other words, when God is present here this morning, when he's present in your life, He's not present to condemn. He's not present to put you away. He's not present to to judge you. He is present to save you. He is present to change your heart. He is present to forgive you. And the only way that we'll have to experience judgment for our sin is if we reject that presence and reject the, the grace that God offers us. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And as we've been doing this series on righteous, I noticed something as we were going through the different messages. That the scriptures again and again and again point to the fact that being right with God, being righteous, is the same thing as actually being a child of God. It's, it's a lot deeper intimacy than just going, okay, well, we had a fight, but it's okay, it's fine, I forgive you, you know, sometimes people be like, I forgive you, but I'm never gonna talk to you again, you know, and, and, and it's fine, sort yourself out. If you don't do it again, then, then maybe we can have a relationship again in the future. No, God goes, I make you so right with me, with myself through Jesus, that I can actually welcome you into my family. You're not just forgiven, you're part of the family. You're not just somebody who's like, oh, my my sins are forgiven. I think I believe in Jesus, but that's okay, but I don't really belong here. No, you belong. You belong to God. You're His child. You didn't just go from a, a sinner who is now a forgiven sinner who's still sitting on the sidelines. You're right smack bang in the middle of this family, and God has become your father, and He loves you, and He wants to walk with you, and He wants to teach you, and He wants to show you all the things a good heavenly father would want to show his child or his children. You've been adopted. The moment you became righteous, you were adopted. You became a child of God. So the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. This is our hope. That we're no longer on the outside. That we're no longer struggling to get into the club. That we're no longer uh, rejected. But we're part of this family. We're children of God. Imagine if I, with my boys, didn't really have contact with them, I didn't really show up in their lives, I, didn't re- I wasn't really present, but every morning I would leave before they wake up and all I would do, my form of parenting, would be to slip a list of rules and chores that they have to do for the day under their door and sign it, your father. Can you imagine what kind of children that would create? Absolute rebels, right? Absolute rebels. If I did that. Because that's not fathering. That's not presence. That's not love. So why do we think that when God is present in our lives as a father, that he would want to just slip a list of rules under your door and say, hey, 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 stop doing that. Hey, can you just do these chores and then I'll talk to you in heaven one day? It's warped. It's warped. In fact, Paul uses a stronger word for it. He says it's a perversion of the gospel. God is a father. And no good father wants to lead his children with lists and, 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 and books and projects that they're supposed to undertake. A good father wants to be with his children, wants to walk with them, wants to speak to them, wants to encourage them. Does God discipline us? Yes, because He loves us. But the Bible says, God disciplines those in whom He delights. And people read that verse and focus on the discipline, and they forget about the delight. He delights in you. Just think about that for a moment. Sorry, I know I'm repeating this, but I just, I want you to understand this morning, God delights in you. And he, it even goes, it says in that verse in Hebrews, it says that those whom the Lord delights in, he disciplines. And it says, so that which has been put out will not become lame, not be put out of joint. The idea here is, is that if you've got an area of your life that is, that is lame, that, is, that, is, that you've lost the, the ability to control, that you've lost the ability to, to do the things that God has called you to do. If you Imagine if you were walking around with a leg that was lame, but you're trying to run. What would happen? That leg would eventually just come out of its joint. There's nothing holding it in. And so even the concept of discipline in the book of Hebrews, it's like bringing something that is broken or something that is loose and bringing it near so that it can heal, so that the muscles can strengthen, so that you can get the use back in that arm. It's about restoration. It's about bringing recovery of strength. God never disciplines just to be an angry God who wants to let you know that you've disappointed Him. He wants to put things back in place in your life. He wants to love you in that way. He delights in you. He wants to show you that sometimes He's gonna bind a certain area up to bring healing. It's like taking a broken arm and putting it in a cast. It's love, and that's how God loves. He doesn't wanna lead us by laws, but He wants us to hear His voice. Scripture tells us that God is not only present with us, but He resides within us, that we have become temples of the Holy Spirit. He is present with us all of the time, and we no longer have to be ashamed because we've been made righteous. Another thing that we've done in the series as we've gone along is that we've often looked at the Old Testament and examples in the Old Testament, and we've seen some themes and how they're actually realized and fulfilled in the New Testament, how Ultimately, those things point to Jesus. And one of those things, just about God being with us, we actually see that right throughout the Old Testament, God is showing up, not only in spirit, but actually physically showing up. Like right from the beginning with Adam and Eve, he's walking in the garden. Now, if that isn't an indication of the intention of God's heart for us as mankind, I don't know what is. Here he is, he just created this garden, he created this world, and he takes on the form of a man and walks in that garden so that he can hang out with Adam and Eve. And throughout the Old Testament, we have these theophanies or Christophanies, which is basically in the Old Testament where God shows up physically, even where Jesus showed up before his birth in the Old Testament. And these occasions speak so loudly about the heart of God. But I just want to look at at one instance today in in Exodus chapter number 3. The context here is that, just before we read that scripture, the context is that God's people are slaves in Egypt. They're in slavery, they're being oppressed, they're physically being oppressed, they're spiritually being oppressed, they have to work hard all day uh, as slaves, and then they're not free to worship God, their own God, they have to worship Baal and the other gods of Egypt, and they have to bring honor uh, to the Pharaoh and and all of the the, the philosophies and and, and religious ideas of those ancient Egyptians, And, and, and they're literally oppressed, and so what they do is they cry out to God. They say, God, we're oppressed. God, we're going through a difficult time. God, we're we're not free to worship you. We're we're in bondage. And God shows up, just like He did through Jesus. He shows up. He's been showing up a lot. He keeps showing. He's a good father. A good father shows up, and He shows up. And this one occasion, the Bible says He shows up in as a fire that's uh, burning as a on a bush, but the bush itself is not being burnt. And he talks to Moses and he says this to Moses in Exodus chapter number three and verse seven. Just listen to this. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. I have seen them. I have heard them and I've come to do something about it. God with us. Those are three amazing points in this scripture. Number one, I have seen. God has seen. God has seen what you've been through. He has seen your disappointments. He has seen your hurts. He sees deeper than what you even understand. He's aware of the things that happened. He's aware of the injustices. He's aware of the hurts and the pains that you have experienced. And he cares. He cares. His heart is for you. So God sees you this morning. I want you to know that. He knows you this morning. He knows what you're going through. And his desire is to give you life and life abundantly. The second thing God says to Moses is, I have heard. He knows the things that we whisper to ourselves when no one else is around. You know those absolute moments of vulnerability when you just feel absolutely lost or broken or or vulnerable and you just go, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. And in those moments, Jesus hears not only the cry of our mouths, but the cry of our hearts. One of the earliest moments I can remember of this was uh, back at a time in in primary school, actually, I played softball. And uh, on one occasion, we used a ball machine to practice catching. And and some of the guys, I think, Stuart, you may even have been there. And the ball machine, uh, the ball actually shot the ball like right across the soccer field and smacked me in the nose. Broke my nose. Uh, it was quite bad. I did an operation um, and it was quite hectic. And I remember that night going home after I'd been to the doctor, been to the hospital, the operation was scheduled and, um, and I looked in the mirror and it was horrific. I didn't know what you're supposed to look like when you've, you've broken your nose. But I I really looked bad. My eyes were swollen. my, My nose just looked completely different. And it's a weird thing looking at yourself in the mirror and not seeing the face that you're used to seeing. It's psychologically, there's something just incredibly intense about that. And I looked at that, and my first thought was, what if... I look like this forever like what if they do the operation but this never gets better right and i've kind of like it's changed the whole way that i look and i remember being absolutely and this might sound silly now but in that moment i was just like i was heartbroken i was desperate And i remember going to my next to my bed and falling down by the side of my bed and going and just crying i mean jesus don't let me look like this jesus help me jesus please heal me don't you know and obviously he did a miracle look at me now you know it's all it's all worked out but but the point is, is that in those desperate moments, and, and let me just say that in the rest of my life, I've had to cry out to Jesus in that same kind of spirit and vulnerability for things far greater than a broken nose. I've had to cry out to God with the depths of my soul, with when I thought that and felt like I'd lost everything, when I felt betrayal, when I felt hurt, when I felt pain beyond what I thought I would experience in this life, I've gone to God in the same way fall down by the side of my bed and just cry, Jesus, help me, help me, help me. You know what? You would lose hope if you didn't believe in a God who hears. But the scriptures tells us that he is close to the brokenhearted. He hears our cries. He goes, I have heard the cries of my people and I know their suffering. I know their suffering. The Bible tells us that Jesus isn't this, this, this God who sits aloof on a hill somewhere, but he entered into our suffering. And Isaiah 56 tells us that he is a man who was acquainted with grief, a man of many sorrows, as one from whom people hid their faces. He wasn't this pretty boy who ran through the streets and everybody was high-fiving him. Hey, it's Jesus. Hey, it's Jesus. Jesus was acquainted with grief and sorrow and he was tempted on every point. And therefore the Bible tells us we have a compassionate high priest. He has compassion for you this morning. I want you to know that. He has compassion. He is God with us. He cares. So not only does God see Not only does God hear, but he says, I have come down. I have come down. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. He is God who is present. He is God who stands there with you in the midst of your pain. He says, I am here to do something about it. I'm here to deliver you. I have come down so that I can deliver my people, to bring salvation and change and hope and restoration. That's what Jesus came to do. It says, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. From the fullness of who Jesus is. Just get that for a moment. If you take the fullness of Jesus, what do you get? Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus into our lives. Without the grace of God, none of us would be able to stand in God's presence. God couldn't be present with any of us if it wasn't for his His grace. Literally, his grace. His presence is grace. Jesus is the grace of God who is present with us. Without God's grace, we would never be able to be God's children. We'd never be able to serve God or be righteous. And just as a quick side note this morning, I want to say that I really dislike this thing that people try and proclaim, that grace makes people sin. You know, the, the Scriptures talk about how they preach, but they don't even understand what they're preaching. They don't even know the thing that they're talking about. They've completely misunderstood the gospel. This idea that if, if you talk, tell people about the grace of God, it'll make them sin. But I want to tell you that a real experience of God's grace does exactly the opposite. It produces gratitude. And if it was from the fullness of Jesus that we received grace upon grace, and we're saying that grace is what makes us sin, then we're saying basically that it's Jesus And the fullness of who he is that makes us sin. That what Jesus brought us, actually Jesus leads us into sin by giving us grace. It's just not true. And we need to stop saying that. Because here's the truth. God's grace is the only thing that will stop us from sinning. Because it is the only thing that can make us right with God and cause us to become his children. It's the only thing that will turn the hearts of rebels because it is Jesus himself. He's with you through thick and through thin, through good and through bad, through failure and through victory. He's with you. He's God with you. He's God present. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Even when you wanna run in the opposite direction, he runs with you. You cannot escape his presence. He is God who is present with you and he is for you. And ultimately, Jesus is leading us into everything that God has called us to. He remains with us, present through His Spirit, present through His church. And He is truly present in our lives. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. Because God is present with a bunch of rebels like us because of His grace and His sacrifice on the cross. We're not only tolerated, we've become His children. We're part of the family. Everlasting righteousness through Jesus Christ. And he's gonna be present with you when you leave here right now. And when you go on holiday, or even if you don't, if you stay in Joburg, Jesus even stays in Joburg over the holidays. Nobody else does, but Jesus does. He's here, he's present, and he never leaves you nor forsakes you. That's the God who we serve, a faithful God. Let's just go ahead and and pray together this morning.